Section 9 of Commentary on the Epistles of Paul the Apostle to the Corinthians, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. Commentary on the Epistles of Paul the Apostle to the Corinthians, Volume 1, by John Calvin. Translated by Rev. John Pringle. 1 Corinthians, Chapter 1, verses 14 to 20. I thank God that I baptized none of you, but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in mine own name. And I baptized also the household of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Verse 14. I thank my God. In these words he reproves very sharply the perversity of the Corinthians, which made it necessary for him to avoid, in a manner, a thing so sacred and honorable as that of the administration of baptism. Paul, indeed, would have acted with propriety and in accordance with the nature of his office, though he had baptized ever so many. He rejoices, however, that it had happened otherwise, and acknowledges it as having been so ordered, in the providence of God, that they might not take occasion from that to glory in him, or that he might not bear any resemblance to those ambitious men who endeavored in this way to catch followers. But what if he had baptized many? There would have been no harm in it, but, as I have said, there is couched under this a heavy reproach against the Corinthians and their false apostles, inasmuch as a servant of the Lord found occasion to rejoice that he had refrained from a work otherwise good and commendable, lest it should become an occasion of harm to them. Verse 17. For Christ sent me not. He anticipates an objection that might, perhaps, be brought against him, that he had not discharged his duty, inasmuch as Christ commands his apostles to baptize as well as teach. Accordingly, he replies that this was not the principal department of his office, for the duty of teaching had been principally enjoined upon him as that to which he should apply himself. For when Christ says of the apostles, Matthew chapter 28 verse 19, Mark chapter 16 verse 15, go, preach, and baptize, he connects baptism with teaching simply as an addition or appendage, so that teaching always holds the first place. Two things, however, must be noticed here. The first is that the apostle does not here absolutely deny that he had a command to baptize, for this is applicable to all the apostles, go and baptize and he would have acted rashly in baptizing even one had he not been furnished with authority, but simply points out what was the chief thing in his calling. The second thing is that he does not by any means detract here, as some think, from the dignity or utility of the sacrament. For the question here is not as to the efficacy of baptism, and Paul does not institute this comparison with the view of detracting in any degree from that, but because it was given to few to teach, while many could baptize, and farther, as many could be taught at the same time, 
while baptism could only be administered to individuals successively, one by one, Paul, who excelled in the gift of teaching, applied himself to the work that was more especially needful for him, and left to others what they could more conveniently accomplish. Nay, farther, if the reader considers minutely all the circumstances of the case, he will see that there is irony tacitly conveyed here, dexterously contrived for making those feel acutely, who, under color of administering a ceremony, endeavor to catch a little glory at the expense of another's labor. Paul's labors in building up that church had been incredible. There had come after him certain effeminate masters who had drawn over followers to their party by the sprinkling of water. Paul, then, giving up to them the title of honor, declares himself contented with having had the burden. Not with wisdom of words. There is here an instance of anticipation, by which a twofold objection is refuted. For these pretended teachers might reply that it was ludicrous to hear Paul, who was not endowed with eloquence, making it his boast that the department of teaching had been assigned to him. Hence he says, by way of concession, that he had not been formed to be an orator, to set himself off by elegance of speech, but a minister of the Spirit, that he might, by plain and homely speech, bring to nothing the wisdom of the world. Now, lest anyone should object that he hunted after glory by his preaching, as much as others did by baptism, he briefly replies that as the method of teaching that he pursued was the farthest removed from show, and breathed nothing of ambition, it could give no ground to suspicion on that head. Hence, too, if I mistake not, it may readily be inferred what was the chief ground of the controversy that Paul had with the wicked and unfaithful ministers of the Corinthians. It was that, being puffed up with ambition, that they might secure for themselves the admiration of the people, they recommended themselves to them by a show of words and mask of human wisdom. From this main evil two others necessarily followed, that by these disguises, so to speak, the simplicity of the gospel was disfigured, and Christ was, as it were, clothed in a new and foreign garb, so that the pure and unadulterated knowledge of him was not to be found. Farther, as men's minds were turned aside to neatness and elegance of expression, to ingenious speculations, and to an empty show of superior sublimity of doctrine, the efficacy of the spirit vanished, and nothing remained but the dead letter. The majesty of God, as it shines forth in the gospel, was not to be seen, but mere disguise and useless show. Paul, accordingly, with the view of exposing these corruptions of the gospel, makes a transition here to the manner of his preaching. This he declares to be right and proper, while at the same time it was diametrically opposed to the ambitious ostentation of those men. It is as though he had said, I am well aware how much your fastidious teachers delight themselves in their high-sounding phrases. As for myself, I do not simply confess that my preaching has been conducted in a rude, coarse, and unpolished style, but I even glory in it. For it was right that it should be so, and this was the method that was divinely prescribed to me. By the wisdom of words, he does not mean lohithethalia, which is mere empty talk, but true eloquence, which consists in skillful contrivance of subjects, ingeniously arranged, and elegance of expression. He declares that he had nothing of this, nay more, that it was neither suitable to his preaching nor advantageous. Lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. 
as he had so often previously presented the name of christ in contrast with the arrogant wisdom of the flesh so now with the view of bringing down thereby all its pride and loftiness he brings forward to view the cross of christ for all the wisdom of believers is comprehended in the cross of christ and what more contemptible than a cross whoever therefore would desire to be truly wise in god's account must of necessity stoop to this abasement of the cross and this will not be accomplished otherwise than by his first of all renouncing his own judgment and all the wisdom of the world paul however shows here not merely what sort of persons christ's disciples ought to be and what path of learning they ought to pursue but also what is the method of teaching in christ's school the cross of christ says he would have been made of none effect if my preaching had been adorned with eloquence and show the cross of christ he has put here for the benefit of redemption which must be sought from christ crucified now the doctrine of the gospel which calls us to this should savour of the nature of the cross so as to be despised and contemptible rather than glorious in the eyes of the world the meaning therefore is that if paul had made use of philosophical acuteness and studied address in the presence of the corinthians the efficacy of the cross of christ in which the salvation of men consists would have been buried because it cannot come to us in that way here two questions are proposed first whether paul here condemns in every respect the wisdom of words as opposed to christ and secondly whether he means that eloquence and the doctrine of the gospel are invariably opposed so they cannot agree together and that the preaching of the gospel is vitiated if the slightest tincture of eloquence is made use of for adorning it to the first of these i answer that it were quite unreasonable to suppose that paul would utterly condemn those arts which it is manifest are excellent gifts of god and which serve as instruments as it were to assist men in the accomplishment of important purposes as for those arts then that have nothing of superstition but contain solid learning and are founded on just principles as they are useful and suited to the common transactions of human life so there can be no doubt that they have come forth from the holy spirit and the advantage which is derived and experienced from them ought to be ascribed exclusively to god what paul says here therefore ought not to be taken as throwing any disparagement upon the arts as if they were unfavorable to piety the second question is somewhat more difficult for he says that the cross of christ is made of none effect if there be any admixture of the wisdom of words i answer that we must consider who they are that paul here addresses the ears of the corinthians were tickled with a silly fondness for high-sounding style hence they needed more than others to be brought back to the abasement of the cross that they might learn to embrace christ as he is unadorned and the gospel in its simplicity without any false ornament i acknowledge at the same time that this sentiment in some respects holds invariably that the cross of christ is made of none effect not merely by the wisdom of the world but also by eloquence of address for the preaching of christ crucified is simple and unadorned and hence it ought not to be obscured by false ornaments of speech it is the prerogative of the gospel to bring down the wisdom of the world in such a way that stripped of our own understanding we show ourselves to be simply docile and do not think or even desire to know anything but what the lord himself teaches as to the wisdom of the flesh we shall have occasion to consider more at large ere long in what respects it is opposed to christ as to eloquence i shall advert to it here in a few words 
insofar as the passage calls for. We see that God from the beginning ordered matters so that the gospel should be administered in simplicity without any aid from eloquence. Could not he who fashions the tongues of men for eloquence be himself eloquent if he chose to be so? While he could be so, he did not choose to be so. Why it was that he did not choose these, I find two reasons more particularly. The first is that in a plain and unpolished manner of address, the majesty of the truth might shine forth more conspicuously, and the simple efficacy of his spirit, without external aids, might make its way into the hearts of men. The second is, that he might more effectually try our obedience and docility, and train us at the same time to true humility. For the Lord admits none into his school but little children. Hence those alone are capable of heavenly wisdom, who, contenting themselves with the preaching of the cross, however contemptible it may be in appearance, feel no desire whatever to have Christ under a mask. Hence the doctrine of the gospel required to be regulated with this view, that believers should be drawn off from all pride and haughtiness. But what if any one should, at the present day, by discoursing with some degree of eloquence, adorn the doctrine of the gospel by eloquence? Would he deserve to be on that account rejected, as though he either polluted it or obscured Christ's glory? I answer in the first place that eloquence is not at all at variance with the simplicity of the gospel, when it does not merely not disdain to give way to it and be in subjection to it, but also yields service to it as a handmaid to her mistress. For as Augustine says, He who gave Peter a fisherman, gave also Cyprian an orator. By this he means that both are from God, notwithstanding that the one, who is much the superior of the other as to dignity, is utterly devoid of gracefulness of speech, while the other, who sits at his feet, is distinguished by the fame of his eloquence. That eloquence, therefore, is neither to be condemned nor despised, which has no tendency to lead Christians to be taken up with an outward glitter of words, or intoxicate them with empty delight, or tickle their ears with its tinkling sound, or cover over the cross of Christ with its empty show as with a veil, but, on the contrary, tends to call us back to the native simplicity of the gospel, tends to exalt the simple preaching of the cross by voluntarily abasing itself, and, in fine, acts the part of a herald to procure a hearing for those fishermen and illiterate persons who have nothing to recommend them but the energy of the Spirit. I answer, secondly, that the Spirit of God also has an eloquence of his own, but of such a nature as to shine forth with a native luster peculiar to itself, or rather, as they say, intrinsic, more than with any adventitious ornaments. Such is the eloquence that the prophets have, more particularly Isaiah, David, and Solomon. Moses, too, has a sprinkling of it. Nay, farther, even in the writings of the apostles, though they are more unpolished, there are notwithstanding some sparks of it occasionally emitted. Hence the eloquence that is suited to the Spirit of God is of such a nature that it does not swell with empty show, or spend itself in empty sound, but is solid and efficacious, and has more of substance than elegance. Verse 18. For the preaching of the cross, etc. In this first clause a concession is made, for as it might very readily be objected that the gospel is commonly held in contempt if it be presented in so bare and abject a form, Paul of his own accord concedes this, but when he adds that it is so in the estimation of them that perish, 
he intimates that no regard must be paid to their judgment. For who would choose to despise the gospel at the expense of perishing? The statement, therefore, must be understood in this way. However the preaching of the cross, as having nothing of human wisdom to recommend it to esteem, is reckoned foolishness by them that perish, in our view, notwithstanding, the wisdom of God clearly shines forth in it. He indirectly reproves, however, the perverted judgment of the Corinthians, who, while they were, through seduction of words, too easily allured by ambitious teachers, regarded with disdain an apostle who was endowed with the power of God for their salvation, and that simply because he devoted himself to the preaching of Christ. In what way the preaching of the cross is the power of God unto salvation, we have explained in commenting upon Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Verse 19. For it is written, etc. He shows still further, from the testimony of Isaiah, how unreasonable a thing it is that the truth of the gospel should be regarded with prejudice on the ground that the wise of this world hold it in contempt, not to say derision. For it is evident from the words of the prophet that their opinion is regarded as nothing in the account of God. The passage is taken from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14, where the Lord threatens that he will avenge himself upon the hypocrisy of the people by this kind of punishment, that wisdom will perish from the wise, etc., now the application of this to the subject in hand is this. It is nothing new or unusual for men to form utterly absurd judgments, who appear in other respects to be distinguished for wisdom. For in this manner the Lord has been wont to punish the arrogance of those who, depending on their own judgment, think to be leaders to themselves and others. In this manner did he, among the Israelitish people of old, destroy the wisdom of those who were the leaders of the people. If this happened among a people whose wisdom the other nations had occasion to admire, what will become of others? It is proper, however, to compare the words of the prophet with those of Paul, and to examine the whole matter still more closely. The prophet, indeed, makes use of neuter verbs when he says, Wisdom will perish and prudence will vanish, while Paul turns them into the active form by making them have a reference to God. They are, however, perfectly the same in meaning. For this is a great prodigy, which God declares he will exhibit, so that all will be filled with astonishment. Wisdom, therefore, perishes, but it is by the Lord's destroying it. Wisdom vanishes, but it is by the Lord's covering it over and effacing it. As to the second term, teen, which Erasmus renders reject, as it is ambiguous, and sometimes taken to mean efface, or expunge, or obliterate, I prefer to understand it in this sense here, so as to correspond with the prophet's word, vanish or be hid. At the same time, there is another reason that has weighed more with me, that the word reject was not in accordance with the subject, as will appear ere long. Let us see, then, as to the meaning. The prophet's meaning, without doubt, is precisely this, that they would no longer have governors that would rule well, because the Lord would deprive them of sound judgment and intelligence. For as he elsewhere threatens to send blindness upon the whole nation, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10, so here upon the leaders, which is just as though he were plucking the eyes out of the body. However this may be, a great difficulty arises from the circumstance that the term wisdom or prudence was taken by Isaiah in a good sense, while Paul quotes it for an opposite purpose, as though the wisdom of men were condemned by God as being perverted, and their prudence set aside as being mere vanity. 
I confess that it is commonly expounded in this way, but as it is certain that the oracles of the Holy Spirit are not perverted by the apostles to meetings foreign to their real design, I choose rather to depart from the common opinion of interpreters than to charge Paul with falsehood. In other respects, too, the natural meaning of the prophet's words accords not ill with Paul's intentions. For if even the wisest become fools, when the Lord takes away a right spirit, what confidence is to be placed in the wisdom of men? Further, as it is God's usual way of punishing to strike blind those who, following implicitly their own judgment, are wise in their own esteem, it is not to be wondered if carnal men, when they rise up against God with the view of subjecting his eternal truth to their rashness, are turned into fools and become vain in their imaginations. We now see with what appropriateness Paul makes use of this testimony. Isaiah declares that the vengeance of God upon all those that served God with their own inventions would be that wisdom would vanish from their wise men. Paul, with a view of proving that the wisdom of this world is vain and worthless when it exalts itself against God, adduces this testimony from Isaiah. Verse 20. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? This expression of triumph is added for the purpose of illustrating the prophet's testimony. Paul has not taken this sentiment from Isaiah, as is commonly thought, but speaks in his own person. For the passage which they point to, Isaiah chapter 33 verse 18, has nothing corresponding to the subject in hand or nearly approaching to it. For in that passage, while he promises to the Jews deliverance from the yoke of Sennacherib, that he may magnify the more this great blessing from God, he shows how miserable is the condition of those that are oppressed by the tyranny of foreigners. He says that they are in a constant fever of anxiety, from thinking themselves beset with scribes or questers, treasurers and counters of towers. Nay more, he says, that the Jews were involved in such difficulties that they were stirred up to gratitude by the very remembrance of them. It is a mistake, therefore, to suppose that this sentence is taken from the prophet. The term world ought not to be taken in connection with the last term merely, but also with the other two. Now by the wise of this world, he means those who do not derive their wisdom from illumination by the Spirit through means of the words of God, but, endowed with mere worldly sagacity, rest on the assurance which it affords. It is generally agreed that by the term scribes is meant teachers, for as sephar among the Hebrews means to relate or recount, and the noun derived from it, sefer, is used by them to signify a book or volume, they employ the term sopherim to denote learned men, and those that are conversant with books, and, for the same reason too, the sopher regis is often used to denote a chancellor or secretary. The Greeks, following the etymology of the Hebrew term, have translated it lohithethalia, scribes. He appropriately gives the name of investigators to those that show off their acuteness by starting difficult points and involved questions. Thus, in a general way, he brings to nothing man's entire intellect so as to give it no standing in the kingdom of God. Nor is it without good reason that he inveighs so vehemently against the wisdom of men, for it is impossible to express how difficult a thing it is to eradicate from men's minds a misdirected confidence in the flesh, that they may not claim for themselves more than is reasonable. Now there is more that ought to be, if, depending even in the slightest degree upon their own wisdom, they venture themselves to form a judgment. Hath not God made foolish, etc.? 
by wisdom here he means everything that man can comprehend either by the natural powers of his understanding or as deriving aid from practice from learning or from a knowledge of the arts for he contrasts the wisdom of the world with the wisdom of the spirit hence whatever knowledge a man may come to have without the illumination of the holy spirit is included in the expression the wisdom of this world this he says god has utterly made foolish that is he has convicted it of folly this you may understand to be affected in two ways for whatever a man knows and understands is mere vanity if it is not grounded in true wisdom and it is in no degree better fitted for the apprehension of spiritual doctrine than the eye of a blind man is for discriminating colors we must carefully notice these two things that a knowledge of all the sciences is mere smoke when the heavenly science of christ is wanting and man with all his acuteness is as stupid for obtaining of himself a knowledge of the mysteries of god as an ass is unqualified for understanding musical harmonies for in this way he reproves the destructive pride of those who glory in the wisdom of the world so as to despise christ and the entire doctrine of salvation thinking themselves happy when they are taken up with creatures and he beats down the arrogance of those who trusting to their own understanding attempt to scale heaven itself there is also a solution furnished at the same time to the question how it happens that paul in this way throws down upon the ground every kind of knowledge that is apart from christ and tramples as it were under foot what is manifestly one of the chief gifts of god in this world for what is more noble than man's reason in which man excels the other animals how richly deserving of honor are the liberal sciences which polish man so as to give him the dignity of true humanity besides this what distinguished and choice fruits they produce who would not extol with the highest commendation civil prudence not to speak of other things by which governments principalities and kingdoms are maintained a solution of this question i say is opened up to view from the circumstance that paul does not expressly condemn either man's natural perspicacity or wisdom acquired from practice and experience or cultivation of mind attained by learning but declares that all this is of no avail for acquiring spiritual wisdom and certainly it is madness for any one confiding either in his own acuteness or the assistance of learning to attempt to fly up to heaven or in other words to judge of the secret mysteries of the kingdom of god or to break through exodus chapter nineteen verse twenty one to a discovery of them for they are hid from human view let us then take notice that we must restrict to the specialities of the case in hand what paul here teaches respecting the vanity of the wisdom of this world that it rests in the mere elements of the world and does not reach to heaven in other respects too it holds true that without christ sciences in every department are vain and that the man who knows not god is vain though he should be conversant with every branch of learning nay more we may affirm this too with truth that these choice gifts of god expertness of mind acuteness of judgment liberal sciences and acquaintance with languages are in a manner profaned in every instance in which they fall to the lot of wicked men End of section nine